We're living ever longer and healthier lives. Are we ready? Our extra decades impact everything from careers and couples to companies and countries. The old three-course meal of education, work, and retirement is morphing into a four-quarter feast. So how does knowing we're likely to have more life impact our thinking and planning for the journey? And how are companies adapting as both talent and consumers get older? I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and this is Four Quarter Lives. John Bateson is a career marketing and consumer analytics expert. I discovered him through his Substack newsletter, Consumer Ageism, which I highly recommend. It's a weekly source of in-depth data and reports on all things to do with the longevity economy and how companies are thinking, or rather not thinking, about third quarter consumers. One of his favorite beefs, which I intensely share, is his frustration with the noise levels in restaurants, not to mention menus that are printed in light gray, tiny fonts impossible to read without dragging out your phone and turning on the light. Here he shares a broad overview of how and where companies are thinking about longevity. John Bateson, I'd like to welcome you to Four Quarter Lives. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, my pleasure. I have discovered you as the weekly writer of a wonderful Substack newsletter called Consumer Ageism. And I wondered if you can share with us why did you start it and what have you learned writing it for the last <laughs> year and a half? Yeah, it's been a long time. Why did I start it? I actually am writing it up as a book, as you know. And the answer is in the introduction, I describe how I started it. I went to a very expensive restaurant in London. We sat down, they gave me the menu. I couldn't read it. I put my glasses on. I still couldn't read it. So then I got my phone out and I turned on the flashlight function. And then I read the menu and ordered. And then I looked around and realized that at least half the people in the restaurant had their flashlight function on. I do every time. Yep. Every time. And I looked at the manager who was a lot younger than we were and thought, well, doesn't she notice? Doesn't she notice that every night half of the room needs a better way of being able to read the menu? And it was one of those classic bad menus in the sense that it was a pale blue book with a dark blue typeface on it, which if you've got any kind of sight problems, it's going to be a nightmare. And so I got into this. I thought, well, is it just ages? And how typical are we of the whole market? Are we a big enough group that this restaurant ought to do something about it? And that's what really set me off. And that set me off into a whole set of different literatures about the marketing literature I know because I'm a service marketing person by background and academia and inclination. So I knew that when you create experiences in a restaurant, I know how the music affects you and how the light affects you and how the smell affects you. But then I ended up in gerontology. I ended up in neuroscience trying to understand what happens to my brain as I get older. And as you can tell, I'm of an age that I'm also one of these consumers. So I'm interested in actually understanding what's happening to me. What have I learned? The biggest aha, I think, is the fact that it doesn't take much to keep a 65 to 80-year-old happy in that setting. It's not massive amounts of investment. It's not big capital costs. I wish that sometimes they would stop designing restaurants the way they do with hard floors, hard windows, hard tables, no soundproofing. Industrial chic. Yeah, industrial chic has become the ultimate. And there's a new restaurant just opened in London, which is done in corrugated iron, which must be even worse. And I just don't (laughs) think that they understand that I've got good hearing, but some of my friends haven't. And in those settings, 
they can't do anything. They can't hear it or anything else. But in most cases, the amount of changes that have to be made, it's much more about sensitivity and understanding that an older person might have that issue. And for crying out loud, bring back some of the old-fashioned booths, because booths in restaurants used to be fairly common and still are in French bistros. And if you're in a booth, you can have a conversation with your people you're having dinner with instead of shouting at them. The biggest R has been that. And are you concluding that this is a lack of will or an intentional exclusion of an age group that they actually don't want in most hyper-chic restaurants? No, because we've got the money. I agree. I'm still just wondering what they No, no, it is coming. I mean, if you look at the evolution of the consumer market, all the consumers in Europe, there's 750 million of us. Two years ago, that market peaked. So we reached the highest number we will ever be. And that market is now going down. And if you look at that market going down, that's going to have some big effect on the packaged goods companies, on the restaurants and whatever. If you look at the market for under 25-year-olds, it's been going down for 30 years. So 30 years ago, in the 70s, that market started going down. We still have this youth cult, but that market is still going down. The only market that's growing are the over 65s. And they're going to grow from 142 million of us this year to 203 million by that 2050. We're going to grow dramatically in terms of numbers. So if you want a market that's growing in terms of numbers of consumers, there's only one market left, the over 65. Very interesting. So before I launch into, okay, so this has been shifting for 30 years and we haven't really gotten the kind of responses we might have expected. I want to just go back one moment to explore before we get into all of your ideas is a little bit about your background and how you got to where I'm so interested in this. And you know that I think in quarters. So I'm wondering if you could summarize your Q2 and Q3 for us in just a few words. You've done <laughs> no, an well, awful you, lot you, of different you, things. In my case, you have to do it in decades. So okay. I was a chemist, did an MBA, discovered marketing. Did a decade in marketing, including in Lever Brothers running soaps and detergent brands. Then I went to the Harvard Business School, so I'm reinventing myself each decade, and did a doctorate in marketing and became an academic. So I spent 10 years as an academic at the London Business School and the Stanford Business School. And then I reinvented myself again and joined a consulting company called the Mac Group, which was run by the faculty of the Harvard Business School as a partner and spent 10 years as a consultant in ending up running a big piece of the Capgemini group, which was the whole IT group. Then I had a decade as a chief executive originally of a public company on the London Stock Exchange, and then I led a management buyout and bought the company, and bought it for only $100 million, sold it for 600 so we did a good deal. And then the last decade, which is where we're in now, I'm kind of doing the best of every bit that I enjoyed. So as an academic, I've gone back to being an academic. I've always written, even during the time I was at work. I've been publishing that whole time. And I have a textbook in services marketing. I've always been an academic, and I enjoy writing. I'm doing that. I'm going back to consulting, but I'm only going consulting because I like to go and play with other people's problems. So I'm doing the fun part of consulting rather than running four and a half thousand consultants, which I was at one point. And then having been a business person, I'm chairing businesses, and I'm chairing businesses for usually companies that are owned by private equity. And I even had an entrepreneurial spurt about four years ago, and I started my own private equity business based in Tehran, 
As one does. As one does. And then four years ago is the incident with the aging, which I think if you read the first edition of my newsletter, it says this is an intellectual journey. It's an exploration. If you want to come along, come along for the ride. And that's basically what it's been. I keep on finding things and reading them and then writing the stuff that's interesting down and some people follow it and like it. But it's kind of research-based, as you say. So that's me. So I'm in decades rather than quarters. And I've been very lucky that I've always chosen careers where I can reinvent myself. Because being an academic, you can be an academic for as long as you want. And in consulting terms, gray hair sometimes helps. Absolutely. And a wonderful example of reinvention all the way along the line. Over a very long, what is that, a 60-year career? Are we talking? Yeah, not that not long, quite yet. 50 will do, 50 will do. So really, this interest in aging is a recent addition yeah, to yeah. your others, but you're very well positioned to understand where the interests for a market and a business might be in this longevity yeah. economy space that we're discussing. So as you say, back to the point of what is this market opportunity and is anybody actually addressing it? Are companies interested in this? As you say, it's been decades that the demographics have been shifting. Are we seeing real response yet? Are we still waiting for it? What is your evaluation? I've got kind of two or three perspectives. There's a perspective based on the UK, which is what is happening here, which is where I would be working. But then you have to go and look at the countries that have been leading this, which is Japan and Germany, are the two that I've been looking at to see whether anybody's picking up on it. So let's start with the UK and then delve to our older cousins. Yes. (laughs) The UK, so far, you're picking up the people who might be obvious. So the insurance industry is interested in the problem. The pension industry is interested in the problem big time. The banks are interested in it because of the wealth management angle. I heard somebody the other day talk about, we can talk about a lifespan and we can talk about a health span, which people know about, but he wanted to talk about the wealth span, i.e. can you keep your money going long enough to enjoy your life? They've all got into it. The other people that fascinate me, and I've not managed to get to talk to any of them yet, are the people who do the cruise ships. Because if you look at the average age of a cruise ship, somebody's latched onto the fact that people of a certain age want to go and explore and do exciting things, but don't necessarily want to go and rough it in a way that makes no sense. And the cruise ship model is an interesting one. And on top of all of that, you've got the normal industry that's related. I mean, it's the care industry, which is desperately trying to reinvent itself because we've never really had a problem like this before. In the old days, you stayed at home and then you went into the care home for a year and then you died, sadly. Whereas now you've got people who want to go into sheltered housing. They want apartments in London that are £200,000 a year, which are sheltered housing on a grand scale with your own car, your own driver, a restaurant downstairs, your own apartment. It's segmenting that way. But I don't see beyond that. If you look at people like the supermarkets are doing it, they're keeping it quiet. They're doing it because they're doing it anyway. I don't think they are. And the restaurants certainly are not turning the music down and turning the lights up. Although just recently in London, there's been a whole spate of new restaurants and they've all got the same lamps. I don't know whether they've arrived in Boston yet. They're about so high, they've got a downward-facing lampshade on them. They're LED, they're battery-powered, and they turn out massive amounts of light. You just stick them on the table and everybody can read the menu and you can see your food, but it doesn't distort the ambience of the restaurant. So somebody's latched onto this problem. 
I did notice the Open Table app in New York has started to measure sound levels in restaurants. Oh, fantastic. Which I yeah. think is a fantastic innovation that I hope will soon come to London. The old correspondent on the San Francisco Times used to do that in the San Francisco papers. And every time he did a newspaper review, he had a scale of one to five from the noise level. Yep. We live in hope. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make it happen. Yep. Okay, I want to move to Japan and Germany. What are they doing? Are they ahead on this? Are their companies much more evolved in this? I mean, we've all read, I think, that BMW has gotten intergenerational older people on their line building cars with robots. There's a two-part attack, which is conversations we were having last week in the Longevity Week. If you can get older people to work, it has a double or even triple benefit. Because one, it seems that if you have older people on the line or part of the teams, you actually get more productivity. And I think it's to do with the emotional maturity of older people as much as anything. They may not work quite as fast, but when things go wrong, they're a lot better at solving the problems. And there's been studies done in Mercedes and BMW. There's a productivity improvement. There's a piece about the health of people that work because a lot of the work that's being done on aging longer says it's in society. And if you feel wanted and you feel like you're needed, then actually it makes a huge difference. And it's also a way of breaking down the whole ageism story as well because people are working together and they respect each other. And then, of course, the third benefit is that the longer you work, the more savings you have and the less time you have to use the savings to live on. So it's a big benefit. So that's the work side. On the consumer side, you've got supermarkets and people like that really experimenting to see what they can do. And that's everything from making the aisles wider so that older people can bend over and pick things up because you need yep. more space. Supermarket trolleys that have got kind of inertia system in them so you can lean on them so you yep. can use them to support to the food systems and the signage and making sure that things are in the same place. And it goes all the way to the credit card machines. I mean, for whatever reason, I don't know who's doing it. I've got to find out. If you look at the way the credit card machines are going, they're getting bigger. The screens are getting bigger. The screens are getting brighter, which is a real help if you have any kind of sight problem or if the lighting is dim or whatever. The problem they've got there, it's the same problem they've got in Japan, is what do you call it? They're calling it the Grand Generation Store, but nobody's found a name. If you called it the Older People's Store, no one would come. Yes, I thought the lesson, and you better than anybody can answer this, I thought the marketing secret to old age was never to segment it separately from everybody else, is to somehow you just can't them in the broader... Just include them. And I think there is an argument that says if you design it for an older person, it doesn't do anybody else any harm. And in fact, it might help them. 50% of the people at 40 need glasses. So if you make a bigger computer screen to read the credit card machine, it's going to help the 40-year-old who's forgotten their glasses just as much as the 70-year-old. The big advantage that Germany has got is that their towns are designed in such a way that they're very pedestrian and public transport friendly. And that makes a huge difference if you've got an aging population that doesn't necessarily want to drive anymore. So the mobility problem in Germany is orders of magnitude less than if you were in the U.S., and I know you're in Boston, so if you want to go to one of the big malls, you could probably get on the subway and go downtown and do that route through the malls. But if you want one of the ones on the ring road, you need a car. When I first got to Boston to go to Harvard, I didn't have a car. And I ended up having to have my friends on the program with me take me to the supermarket because there was no way you could go to the supermarket. Now, luckily, they deliver. Yeah, that yeah. particular need has moved on. Well, but that's part of the infrastructure that's being built. I mean, the whole 
COVID infrastructure has created this massive delivery mechanism, which is bound to help older people without people even realizing it. And the home delivery of food and Uber Eats and all the rest of it is all playing into the hands of older people. Absolutely. Is Japan very different? I remember one wonderful anecdote from one of your newsletters about how the malls in Japan are adapting by creating internal walkways for older people on their top floors. Can you tell me about that? Is that a broader movement? The malls, it's the Aeon Ball Group. They're building a floor on their sometimes two-story supermarkets. They're doing everything you would expect. The stores are the same, except that the merchandise is different. So in the sports shops, instead of selling football boots, they're selling walking shoes. Their store looks the same. It's got different merchandise. The, the mall itself, which is undercover, is covered in carpet because there's nothing worse if you've got old feet than walking on those hard marble floors in the mall. The carpet is marked up in distances so you can do laps and know how far you've gone. There is a gym for people over 75, which is full <laughs> of young trainers because of the old people like the young trainers. They're doing lots of resistance work. And then there are lots of rooms you can rent to do social events. It opens at 7 in the morning, and the main discount period is 7.30 because most older people wake up earlier. And actually, their biological clocks are different, so they wake up earlier. And then in the supermarket, everything is in portions of one because sadly, a lot of old people live on their own. Their trolleys don't stop, but they rotate through 360 degrees. And they're very light. With one hand, you can move the trolleys around. They've spent a lot of time and effort getting it right. And then my other favorite one in Japan is in the care sector. And there's a guy there. It's a daycare center for older people, which is really kind of can be really sad. This guy, you get picked up in the morning, but you don't get picked up in a van. You get picked up in a white limo. And it's a casino. And the entire casino is there for the day. (laughs) You can only play with coupons. And you can only get the coupons by doing the exercise program first thing in the morning. And then the rest of the day, you sit and play roulette. It's called behavioral economics. Yeah, that's right. And then at the end of the day, they count it all up and they declare a winner and they put your picture on the wall. And of course, it's just a different solution to the same problem. And then the one thing that I don't know how they've done, but they've managed to make it a very successful career, attractive career to be a carer for younger people. So they've managed to get the care sector standing on its head instead of being the worst place to be. Including pay? Have they done that? I don't know. I haven't found out that bit yet. That'd be fascinating. Again, from your newsletter, I always thought of Japan as by far and away the oldest country in the world, but I learned that Spain is likely to become the oldest country in the world by 2030. 2035, I think. Their life expectancy in Spain will be higher than that in Japan. But that's more to do with the fact that Japan is so far ahead. So Japan is peaking out on everything. The population of Japan is going down by two people a minute at the moment. So that's two consumers disappearing. And the aging cycle is almost over. So their ability to get more life expectancy is declining. And they've plateaued. And Spain is coming shooting up. But it'll only be 0.1 over, you know, it'll be 85.4 or 85.5 as the life expectancy. But Spain will be there. Italy will be there. Population of Italy is due to half this century, to go down by a half in the next 80 years. What do you do with a country? I mean, there's already lots of empty villages in Italy and yep. Spain. It's a massive social problem, but it's the same. Every country in the world is on the same trajectory. trajectory. It's just yep. a question of where they started and where they are on that flight path. The US, one of the speakers from the National 
Society of Medicine in the US yesterday said that the US has just passed the point that I call the inflection point. There are more people over 65 than under 15. And that happened this year. And that really is the tipping point when you've got to the point where, as I put it, there are more grandparents than children. So how many countries have hit that tipping point? What are we at? I think it's about 60-70% of countries. And I mean, if you look at it the other way, there's 65, 66% of the population now lives in a country where the birth rate is too low to maintain the population. So in reality, that's the beginning of this tipping point. For a while, longevity can compensate for the decline in the population because there's no children. Last Christmas, I wrote a Christmas newsletter, and I'm trying to work out if I can do it, but I want to work out what a family Christmas will be like in 30 years' time, because if everybody's an only child... So do you think these low birth rates are inevitable? I've always thought that part of this birth rate dropping fertility story is the non-adaptation of countries to the fact that women now work mostly full-time and mostly in two-income couples that can't reduce down to one. Do you think that as we get these aging populate, we'll probably get a growth of natalist policies and a reaction to very well, low are on the, You're on the side of the UN. There's three groups of people doing big forecasts of the world population. Yep. The UN assumes that the birth rate will eventually settle out at about 1.75, which is still means the population will decline. And when you think that Taiwan is at one at the moment, that means the Taiwanese population would have to grow. The other two groups can't see how that would happen. Some of the governments have thrown billions of dollars, euros, at trying to get people to have children, and it's not working. I don't know whether you read the Financial Times, but Friday, there's this other woman, Shana Swan, who is working on the drop in the sperm count. I don't know if you've seen yeah. that story. Yeah. They've just done another study across 53 countries, and the sperm count is going down by 2% a year in every one of them. And they think it's the chemicals. They think there's a couple of chemicals that are affecting the hormone imbalance, and that affects women as well. So that your chances of everything coming together is getting lower. And if you insist on trying to have children when you're 35 or 40, the chances are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So I don't know. I'm not optimistic, but I can't believe that we're going to self-destruct humanity. Yeah, it's something to watch, but I find always a bit amazing that these curves of fertility dropping are seen to just be extrapolated automatically. We will see, but the climate change activists would certainly support that trend and see this as a solution. But the climate change models are already using that data. Yeah, I know. So it's not like they can put new data in. I think that now even the UN believes that the world population will peak this century. The guys out of Washington, Seattle saying it'll be 2060, 2065, the world population will peak. And they're forecasting that by the end of this century, the world population will be back where we are today. Just 8 billion, yep. Yeah, just 8 billion is better than 11 billion. (laughs) It's much better. Okay, now I want to shift this a little bit away from the stats to just what are we dealing with now? So a few definitions around age, ageism, and the word old itself. (laughs) When do we become old in your mind? Is that a term that you embrace, refute, want to rebrand? How do you react to it? I looked up the data because I thought this was going to be fun. There was a big survey in Europe, 26,000 people. The question was, when would you be regarded as old? And if you're 15 to 24, old is 59. If you're generous. 
If you're 40 to 54, it's 64. If you're over 55, it's 67. The US data says that only 6% of people over 65 think they're old. And the Japanese have got a campaign going from the Society of Gerontologists where they want to change the definition of old altogether. So pre-old is 65 to 74, old is 75, and super old is 90. Lovely. Okay. And the problem is, if you label something as old, then the danger is that the stereotype kicks in. And yet, at the same time, if you're a campaign group and you want to recruit people, you've got to have a definition of old. To my mind, old is 75, 80, because the answer is, I've got older friends than me who go out to help their old people. <laughs> so. <laughs> so we might agree with Susan Golden that we have to dump the age business and just go to stage and life stage. Where yeah, you well, any, anything. But the conundrum is that from a mental point of view, the neuroscientists will tell you that we can't hold everything in our memory. It's too much. It's like downloading Netflix. So we categorize and we simplify and we hold the basic patterns. And then when we want our memory back, we join the patterns up, which means by definition, we stereotype. We have to stereotype. And the problem about that is that old is a stereotype, same as the young. You talk about the young, well, there's no such thing as the young, and there's no such thing as the old, because everybody is different anyway, especially if you're old. Isn't it also a little bit like AI? Our stereotypes are programmed with old data from the past and not... Yeah. updated with what people actually look like now at the 60 yeah. and the 80, which is rather dramatically different. Yeah, we're getting there to an extent. There's a bunch of people who do media studies, and they've been looking at how old people are portrayed in television and advertising yeah. and films. It's clear that up till about 1990, the old person was the classic, what I call the fourth ager poor, decrepit. It was the janitor who lived in the corner of the building. That has moved. It's moving in the right direction. So people are looking healthier. They look more energetic. But the roles that they're being called upon to play in the programs are still subsidiary roles. So they're still, I use the example of the detective program. So they're still the assistant to the inspector. They're not the inspector. And we're only now getting programs where the old people are really the stars. stars. And it's just starting to happen now. Grace and Frankie and people like that and some of the detective. But that's comedy and that's safer than doing it in a detective program. The the, crown. The the crown, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) The ultimate old lady star. So the stereotype is moving, but it's not really getting through, I don't think. I'm curious to see your thoughts of ageism in the corporate world and the business sector. How old were you when you became CEO? I was 40. I mean, I was told quite nicely when I retired that I wouldn't get another CEO job, which is very odd because in America, I would just be starting my CEO role. So the US is ahead in that model. In the UK, for whatever reason, young CEOs are the name of the game. Even at the top of the organization, there is ageism. And the ageism in employment, I think, is quite tough. I mean, I think, to be honest, it works at both ends of ageism. I think the young people have problems getting on the ladder. You're either too young or too old. The Goldilocks moment is yes, that's right. very I missed, narrow. I missed it. Oh, no, I missed my Goldilocks moment. What's it going to take to change? So what do you think? Again, we're looking at these demographic oh, shifts that, and talent that, wars. That one I'm not worried about because if you're in China, the working population, that's the people who can work, 
between 20 and 64 is going to shrink by a half. They're going to be back to about 1960. So they're going to need everybody they can to go work. That's happening here in the UK now. It's happening across Europe. It's happening in America. People think that the skill shortage is something to do with COVID. You could predict it from the demographics. There were more people leaving the workforce than were joining it. So therefore, without immigration, it doesn't match. If you've got that level of shortage, the pressure will be on, first of all, to get the 55 to 65s working to the same level as everybody else. And if you're working at 65, why not work till 70? That will solve itself in terms of just the shortage of people to do the work. People worry about losing jobs to AI. We're going to need all the AI we've got to keep the machine running. You're fairly optimistic that we'll actually attack this corporate ageism just by sheer talent well, pressure well, that they have yeah, to. For recruitment, for the yeah. consumers, different question is how long does it take people to wake up to the fact that... There's it, a $22 stopped. trillion dollar opportunity yeah. waiting. And I mean, McKinsey did the work and they said that if you go and take any of the big consumer companies like Unilever or Procter & Gabble, half of their growth has come from the increasing numbers of consumers. But if that goes negative, so it's going from being growing 2 to 3% a year more, and then it's going down at 2 to 3% a year, then all of a sudden they've got a massive problem being able to grow their earnings. So they're going to have to be creative about how they get to people and what they try to do. And who's got the purchasing power, yeah. which you will, I think, underline is mostly held by the over 50 group? Yes, and I mean, it's partly a generational baby boomer, lucky bought property and type argument. It will be about older people going back to work, wanting to go back to work. I mean, everybody thinks it's kind of bad that older people go back to work, but a lot of older people don't want to stop working. Yep. In fact, how many stories are there of, on Friday, you're the chief executive, and on Monday, you're Bob. And the transition is just brutal for people whose identity is tied up with their jobs and whose social life is tied up to their jobs. So you have to make much more flexible ways for people to work, but to fit it into some kind of plan of a different kind of life. But that's what the young people are asking for as well. And the parents who are trying to yeah, still yeah. have at least 1.2 babies. Yeah. So can you name some companies that have been more or less, I've done some work on Unilever's internal U-work gig economy inside of the organization. Do you know any companies who are becoming more flexible internally on the talent side or more responsive on the consumer face? The one I had the other day, which was fascinating, which is 7-Eleven in Japan. Those are the same 7-Elevens you have in the U.S., and they run all night. And about 80% of the night shifts are now run by people over 65 because they've discovered a market of people who want to work in the evenings, don't mind staying up late, don't mind being in a warm shop, being sociable in a brightly lit place rather than sitting at home on their own. So, Is it because they're doing part-time? I think they're doing gig-type work. Yeah. I mean, I did a project where we were looking at one of the big charities in the UK, and they were trying to get non-paid workers to come in and help them, but they couldn't make it work. And eventually they built a gig economy solution. You could sign up for any period you want. You just have to sign up. And if you sign up, you have to come. Right. And so they were resourcing the entire building of fences and the opening of the shop and all the other things on a gig-based model with voluntary workers. So I think it can work from that point of view. More and more people are getting used to that gig solution. And I think care workers will go the same way especially the voluntary care workers. There are various people creating apps and programs to get voluntary care workers to the right place at the right time. 
So gig models may liberate our old to work longer and more flexibly. What about the consumer side? Who's any good at responding? We talked a little bit about cruise ships, but if you're looking at the UK, any companies you might spot who are really going to Well, you've, got, you've got Saga, who basically said that they were going to be a company yep. for the over 50s. And they've clearly got a segment there. I mean, they are, whether you should be separating older people and putting them on a boat on their own, because that creates more ageism. The more you separate people, the more likely they are to look down on each other. But on the other hand, if you're going on a cruise and everybody is your generation and you're going to have dinner with them and whatever, then I think it probably works quite well. I just don't see them that they're not innovating. They've done the cruise ships and they've done the insurance. They've worked out that older people have less accidents in their cars and so they can offer them better deals and things like that. But that's the only one you can think of in the UK which has deliberately said, this is what we are doing. Would you also agree that probably the segment of what we call older is going to change quite dramatically as every cohort of decades yeah. floods through? I mean, 60-year-olds aren't what they used to be. No, no. I mean, and I think there's how many quotes are there. The one that got me was there's a measure in the UK, there's a national survey every year of consumers at the center of the population. And one of the questions is, has your health interfered with you doing what you want to do? So you can kind of almost measure when people are not being able to consume anymore. And that curve is moving. It's moving quite yeah. dramatically to the right. The 70-year-old today has got the probability of a 60-year-old 10 years ago. It's moving so fast, this improvement in health, that my message on ageism is we're putting a stereotype which may or may not be right 20 years too early. So at 60, we're treating people like they were 80 in our mental model of what a stereotype is. And therefore, you've got to break down that view of the world. And as a consumer, if you believe that someone is old and frail and decrepit and needs help, but they're actually a biological age of 60. You're not going to talk to them, right? Yeah, You're not going to talk to them, right? You're going to patronize them. You're going to make them feel bad and you're not going to attract them. So there seems to be a big lag time between the reality you're describing and the responses that we're going to get from countries, from companies, even from our own individual brains, ability to keep up. If you had to prioritize three things you'd like to see change in the next decade, what would they be? One, just as a personal thing, I'd like to get rid of the Scandinavian bare-boned restaurant model. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you on that one. That's too It's too noisy. The bar and the kitchen have been combined with the restaurant, and then you've taken all the soundproofing away, and you wonder why no one can hear anything. And I think it's probably illegal, because I think the average noise level is above the legal limit for people working there. Somebody's got to go and get hold of these architects, these interior designers, and do something about it. Or we need a technological solution that will achieve the same thing. But that's just a personal thing. I mean, the ageism agenda is huge. I'm not sure that having advertising campaigns against ageism is going to do it. I'm not sure that education is going to do it. It is actually about mixing older and younger people together and preferably getting them to work together so that younger people can see the value added of older people. That will attack ageism. But ageism, it affects everything else. It's pervasive. And it's also, somebody said the other day, it's multiplicative, I think was the word she used. If you are old and female or you're old and black, or if you're old and disabled, the effect is multiplicative. So it's really bad news from that point of view. So ageism, employment, ageism are the two big levers into this process. And then I just want somebody to fix care as a concept. 
And I think there's a huge what? business opportunity to industrialize the care sector. I sat next to somebody at this conference the other day. All he had was a passive monitoring system that could go into the house of an old person. It yeah. just tracked movements. And what he wanted, which seemed to make sense to me, but he couldn't find anybody to buy it, was when the caregiver comes once or twice a week, they can come in and they can say, how are you today? And they'll say, fine. They'll say, how are you sleeping? And the answer is, fine. And the answer is, well, no, you're not, because you've been up every night this week at least three times. What's wrong? What hurts? Something hurts. And the ability to just take that level of simple technology into a setting like that to multiply the effect of a caregiver has just got to be part of the solution to a massive, massive problem. Little hope on AI and an Apple Watch on every wrist. I think it's Accenture. They've built an Alexa, but the Alexa has got AI in it. And effectively, when you get up in the morning, it says, hello, Aviva. And it's programmed to learn your favorite music, but it's also programmed with all your medication. So it says, Aviva, it's time to take your medicine now. That'd be handy. And so it's becoming not a carer, but it's the box that cares about you. I think there is hope, and I think it's business that's got to do it. I don't think the state is going to go out and buy these boxes for everybody. I think they're going to end up having to be sold or provided by businesses. Although it'll be a lot less expensive for the state to provide a box than healthcare at that age and stage. So I think the financials of all this have yet to be ironed out. I'll conclude with one last question since we are called Four Quarter Lives. Is If I had to ask you for a metaphor of each of your quarters of your <laughs> own life, what would you say? Zero to 25, 25 to 50, 50, 75, and 75 to 100? There's a common theme, which is fun. I've very, very seldom stayed where I wasn't enjoying myself. Smart uh, man. The other common theme is this intellectual curiosity that's coming into aging. Every time I've done something, I've been learning, which is part of the fun, and therefore moving from one place to another, one career to another, has been about learning something new and doing something different. The first quarter has to be about foundations of some kind. I tried to explain it to my grandson, who's old enough to start having those conversations with. You've got to do whatever you do well enough for long enough that you can say you've done it. So quitting after a year doesn't really do it for you. So for crying out loud, choose something where you can do it for two or three years and say you've done it. That's putting in things that you can then talk about to other people afterwards. The second quarter was actually about working out what you wanted to be. Although I'd never believe in a long-run plan. I think it's what you want to be, what kind of person you want to be, and what kind of things you want to do. And the third quarter is the hard work quarter, I think, which is actually... That's when you do it all. And then this quarter is back to far again. This is about the program you're on. It's working out what you want to do that will actually keep you amused. And learning. And, for, and learning for as long as we've got. John Bateson, thank you so much for being with us. To all of your quarters, but particularly this next one, I think we have a lot to learn from you and with you. So consumer ageism on Substack, highly recommended as a read. Thank you for being with us. For more thinking about the impact of our four-quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better.